0: Yeah, you can cut out that erroneous comment on the end. That was not very funny, was it? Before we uh, get going into the uh, the main topics of today, uh, we have a little bit of follow-up, late follow-up, very, very late follow-up, actually. Avid listener, Sagar, pointed out that we were factually erroneous in episode four, where we watched the video of the robot sumo. Oh. He said that uh, generally... Station 13 is pretty on point when it comes to being factually correct. However, he was shocked because during episode four, when we discussed Robert Sumo, Robert Sumo, who's a very nice guy, and uh, Robert Sumo enjoys actually creating robots that fight each other inside a ring, trying to push each other out of the ring, uh, he said that we were so far off base that he was he was aghast. He was shocked that we could be so wrong. Basically, according to Sagar, he actually, uh, I guess in his... Uh, formative years, took part in this actual specific tech sport. Oh, okay. And... He pointed out that they are actually controlled by artificial intelligence.
1: Ah, there you go. See, I thought they were. That's not, that's not us being wrong. That's you being wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I take issue with Cigar's comment. <laughs> uh,
0: yes, he said that another thing that I said that was wrong... Uh, we No, okay, I take responsibility. Another thing that I said that was wrong was... You may remember that one of those uh, robots had flaps that came out of the side. Yes. Yes, and I was wondering what the what the reasoning behind that was. Let me let me just let's see if you can get it. What what do you now think that those flaps are for? If you want to take a second try, I don't know. I, I'm trying to remember what you said. Did you say it was for the
1: greater surface area to to prevent them from being flipped over or something? Was that?
0: I, I'm I'm going to own up completely to what I said, which was highly wrong according to Sagar. But I said that yes, it was. If the idea is to flip the other robot over, then I would imagine that having these flaps that come out the side would would help it stabilize or at least make it harder to flip it over because there's more, right. more more of it to turn over basically right that is very wrong apparently
1: so what are they for are they to are they to push the other robot to have more of an area that they can push with
0: now bear in mind that um uh this conversation with cigar was had over a, about uh, 30 seconds i'm probably going to get this wrong a second time but anyway i'm going to go for it anyway I believe he said that actually those flaps are to confuse the AI of the opponent. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. That that obviously is a theory that we would only have been
1: able to come up with had we been more certain of,
0: of the fact that it is AI in the first place. I'm sure Sagar is probably flipping his table over right now as he's listening because uh, I may have got, gotten it wrong a second time there, but that's a, I think that's what he said. Uh, that does sound like, I don't know, There
1: may there may be multiple reasons. There probably are sort of... I imagine that changes the number of variables having those flaps and some of them would be physical but we did talk briefly when we were talking about the possibility that they were AI we did talk about how the machine vision aspect of that AI identifying the other robot and working out you know what its physical properties would be and what would be the best tactic in order to flip it over and all of that side of things would be one of the difficult challenges right so it makes sense that having the robot be able to kind of artificially give itself a different shape would definitely confuse the AI and make it either just flip out and do totally the wrong thing. Or if it's a particularly good AI, choose the wrong strategy out of a number of strategies that it has available to it. You know, I don't know how sophisticated these AIs are, but you can imagine that they might know the sorts of robots they're likely to come up against and pick their strategies to, to fit their opponent right. so it's it's very interesting uh I'd, I'd be fascinated to hear more from cigar about all this do, do you know where he did it did he do it in japan i don't know feel free cigar to respond further i am i'm fascinated to hear more
0: i apologize for uh for being in, being way off base as he put it
1: uh. <laughs> <laughs> way off base. that does seem a bit harsh i mean the thing that he's criticizing you for is being wrong about a thing of which there are only uh, something completely binary you know <laughs> you you are either one hundred percent correct or you
0: are way off base right so, <laughs> I was indeed way off base, but that's okay that's okay you know we 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 live and we learn that is
1: indeed and speaking of learning this is well firstly this is quite an interesting episode of the podcast because we're actually coming to you from the future or from way in the past, depending on how you look at it, but uh, we're actually, we're recording this podcast quite a way in advance because I'm going to be away in England for the next couple of weeks, and so we did the last episode of the podcast, which listeners will have heard two weeks ago, at the time of recording, has not actually yet been released, and this episode won't be released now for, what is it, three weeks or something?
0: Yeah, that's about right. So everything we're saying may or may not be totally stale by the time you all hear this. Can I just interject a very interesting astronomical point at that, at that uh, juncture there? Uh, certainly. This is completely irrelevant, but I just sort of thought of it, the idea of looking or listening into the past, as it were, in this case. Have you ever stopped at, and looked up at the night sky and actually thought to yourself... That you are looking into the past when you see the stars. Funnily enough, yes, I do think that quite. It's looking not just into the past, but way, way into the past. That is utterly amazing. I mean, when you think about it, it makes total sense, and it doesn't. Like even my my seven year old son, he can understand the fact that the distances are so massive that even light, which we take for granted as being, you know, instantaneous because we we see things happening as they happen. Right. With within our within our, within our microscopic scale on the, the ruler of universal measurements, even these stars are so far away that it takes the light that long to come to us that the way I explained it to my son is that, you know, if he was on if he was on a planet around one of those stars up in the night sky and he waved at me, it would take me I don't even know, what is it, like millions of years, which means that if his if a planet up there just happened to explode or a star suddenly decided to turn its colour from, you know, it, yellow to, uh, you know, shocking pink or something or, or beige or... Uh, or uh, puce or something. I don't know some creative color like that. Well, colors also complicate the issue because, of course, they get warped. That, that, that's uh, that. Yeah, just hold on. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that, that, that's a bit too much of a concept for my peanut brain. But um, <laughs> just the idea that that would take so many, so many millions of years for you to actually see that, which means that what we're seeing right now when we look up into the night sky is millions and millions of years ago. And that that is that is it's it's utterly beautiful. That concept, really, it is. I mean. It's just so so puzzling, but so simple the idea it's not difficult to understand how that comes about, but then you know just something that you take for granted, which is the night sky and the stars up there, when you think about it as being that long ago, it really i don't know it just sort of uh, it's this a magical feeling, isn't it it is interesting, it's funny because it is
1: it's at once kind of amazing and and mystical and fascinating. And simultaneously, completely banal. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Like, it is, it is just a fundamental fact of physics and, and the way the universe works, as, as far as we understand it. And so it falls out naturally. But it is funny to think that when sometimes things happen in the night sky uh, and they are reported as news... You know, there's some telescope was looking at this certain point and saw a supernova. And the way it's reported is as if the supernova just happened,
0: but it's long gone. <laughs> right, right. Amazing. My, my son asked me a question that uh, I couldn't actually answer, of which there aren't many. But on this, on this occasion, he, he got me. He said that if I was on the moon, if I was on the moon waving at you, how long would it take for you to see me wave? Do you know the answer to that?
1: Not off the top of my head, no.
0: Right. So if you, if you know the answer to this question, then tweet it to us, and we will receive that in the future, or well, yes, it will be in the future. Well into the future. Yes, that's right.
1: And you will be hearing us. We are the equivalent of three light weeks away from you,
0: except it's audio, and we've just recorded it. Actually. That's right. And we, uh, this, <laughs> this is like we're like starlight. We're the equivalent of starlight, isn't that? That's a beautiful concept.
1: Beautiful and somewhat misleading concept. I'm, I'm slightly worried that if Sagar was that offended by how wrong you were about the, uh, the robot AI, this topic is also well within his wheelhouse. And I suspect there is far more scope
0: for our being wrong. <laughs> well, you know, if, we, if we're going to be wrong, let's, let's be wrong in fine style. Speaking of uh,
1: expertise, the last episode, as I just mentioned, we recorded last week and we haven't yet released. But in that episode, we spoke, as listeners will be aware, because as far as they were concerned, it came out two weeks ago. We spoke about security Issues at some length, and about password managers in general. Right, and it is quite a tricky topic to get right, and there's a lot of um, it's it's a minefield. So I wanted to run it by a friend of mine who is a a bit of an expert in these matters. So I actually gave him a sneak preview. I sent him the MP3 of the episode to listen to, uh, so that I could just you know have a a bit of a, a once over before we got to this episode, so the follow-up would make it on time.
0: I hope we, uh, were we
1: way off base? It wasn't too bad. I was a little worried. Uh, I had said some things that I knew I was on slightly rocky ground. He said the main thing that we got across that is the most important thing is do not reuse passwords. Right. And the only reasonable way in this day and age where most people have at least... 100 accounts, you probably don't realize how many accounts you have for different things on the internet. Mm. But now I've started putting all of them into a password manager. I do, because my password manager lists them with a count at the top, and it is over 100. It's about 110 at the moment, I think. Right. So there's a good chance, I mean, you know, because you use a password manager as well. But the, the listeners who are not yet using a password manager, right. they may not realize. I have 100, 193, by the way. 193 there you go so there is no way you're going to remember 193 distinct passwords unless you use some sort of technique for generating those passwords which is fundamentally insecure like some people use the same password everywhere but then they intersperse the letters of the thing they're signing up to right so if their password is password and they're signing up to facebook then the f- the password for facebook would be P, F, A, A, S, C, and so on. Well, thanks, Danny. Now now the whole world can log in as me. <laughs> <laughs> That's obviously not a very secure approach. Uh, it's, it's one step up from reusing the same password, but it's, it's not great. So if you're going to be secure, you really do realistically need to use some sort of password manager, and you need to have different passwords on every account. That is the most important principle, and that is the thing that, that we got across. So he was by and large happy with it he did have a couple of comments one thing was we spoke briefly about you said if the encryption is open source and everyone knows how it works doesn't that mean it can be cracked more easily or at least reversed or at least reversed more easily Uh, he pointed to a thing called Kirchhoff's Principle which I'll, I'll link to the Wikipedia article on it in the show notes. But Kirchhoff's principle, Kirchhoff's, uh, I'll, I've probably got the pronunciation all wrong. He's a Dutch, I think, mathematician and scientist uh, from the 19th century. And he stated this principle in 1883. So this goes back a long way. This was well understood a, a long time ago. And he said, a crypto system should be secure even if everything about the system except the key is public knowledge. So in other words, what he's saying is it is not secure unless it has this property that even knowing the way it works, you can't reverse it. Ah, interesting. I see. Without the key. I see, I see. So the Caesar cipher, which we spoke about on the previous episode, is an example of an insecure crypto system. Because if you know the system, then even if you don't know the key, it is very easy to reverse. Right. Whereas modern cryptography systems and algorithms are cryptographically secure because they have this mathematical property that they are much easier to do the transformation in one direction than the other.
0: That's uh, amazing. So it's actually, I see, it's irreversible cryptography, which I guess to a cryptographer would be You know, I mean that's that's the jeans and the T-shirt of 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 a uh, cryptographer's (laughs) wardrobe, really. But you know, again from a layman's point of view, that's that's fantastic or it's amazing that you know they that uh, we can generate ways to obfuscate passphrases such that you actually can't undo them. It's actually
1: can't undo them. Well, so it's it's irreversible to a first order of approximation. Anything I think is mathematically reversible, but It would take, with current technology, it would take like millions of years to go through the process of calculating what the reversal is. So it is essentially irreversible. I see. Now, there is, people do talk about the potential that some fundamental shift in technology, which we don't understand today. And one of the things that is often cited is is the concept of quantum computers. But, you know, something that would allow us to explore many options simultaneously might reduce the length of time it takes to decrypt something or to uh, reverse something without the key enough that it becomes possible. And then we're in trouble. And then we have to come up with a new system that is is strong in the face of this new sort of calculating force. But at present, we are nowhere near being
0: able to do that. So for now, we're safe. Okay, so that answers the question that I had about knowing the recipe for a code actually in this case not really giving you any advantage over cracking the code right at least uh, reversing the code I should say but did you have anything to say about um, the word-based passphrases because of course word-based passphrases where you're basically just making a sentence not only and it's just very practical you know it's easy to remember it's easy to type if you're doing it on a phone right um, rather than just sort of a whole string of random letters and, and symbols which is you know means you have to do it sort of basically one character at a time, at least with a passphrase, you only need to glance at the word and know what you have to type, so it's much faster. Did he have anything to say about the effectiveness of those?
1: Right, yes, uh, he did. So last episode, I feel like this was one of the things I I wanted him to listen to and give feedback on because I felt like I slightly poo-pooed the concept that was in that XKCD comic of of word based passphrases being fundamentally better than than so called sort
0: of secure single word letter and number combination. I'm not sure that he said that it was actually uh, better, but I think well, I think I see. I guess it is better in the sense that it's more practical. Uh, no, he was saying they were they were harder to crack as well. I think. Okay, I thought he was saying that they were better because they. I actually haven't looked at that comic in a long time. I, I seem to recall that he wasn't saying that they were better. From a security point of view, they were just more practical and also uh, on the same order of, of s- security as, you know, a whole bunch of gar- uh, garbled letters. So uh, he, I was actually saying that they're better, was he? I think so.
1: Whether or not he is, many people do.
0: Okay. And I, I I
1: explained the concept of entropy very briefly and about how there are two factors. There is the length of the password and there is the number of options for each Character in the password. And the argument that this comic is making is by increasing the length, even without using all sorts of funny symbols and numbers, you can I- increase the entropy. Uh, following on from that a little bit, there are a couple of points. The example password that was in that comic, which ironically I remembered better than the supposedly easier to remember password that is a phrase, <laughs> is troubadour ampersand three with the, I think it's the A in Troubadour is, is replaced with a 4. And the example phrase password is correct battery horse staple. Mm. And the idea is that those words are randomly selected, but they're easy to remember because you can have a mnemonic, you can have an image in your mind of a correct battery horse staple. Right. There are a couple of important points there. Firstly... The entropy of a password, be careful here, I'm not sure that entropy is necessarily the right term, but the the predictability of a password, which is an English word with a couple of well-known letters replaced by numbers, like an A looks a bit like a 4, so it's clear that that is a common exchange. That is not all that much better than just the English word in the first place. Ah. Things that are operating on a dictionary basis will have those common exchanges in their dictionary. Right. So that's insecure to begin with. And the same goes for past phrases. If you think of a phrase, maybe you put the lyrics to a song or some well-known quotation from Shakespeare or the Bible or something. If you type that, that phrase will, at the very least, follow the rules of grammar. And it will probably involve some sort of linked concepts. That also makes it easier to predict. Mm. So the important thing, an important thing, regardless of whether you're using a password or a passphrase, is that the constituent parts of that key should be truly random. So if it's a password, like the the default passwords that a tool, like 1Password, for example, would generate for you, it's not an English word with a couple of letters changed. It is just a completely random string of letters and numbers. And similarly, for a past phrase, the idea is not that you think of an image and go, okay, correct horse, battery staple. The idea is that those words were selected randomly for you. And then you, post facto, think of a mnemonic to remember those words by. If you do it the other way around, it's more predictable and, and thus less secure. I
0: see. So basically, if you have some system uh, for selecting com- completely random words, but actual existing full dictionary words, yes, that is far better than actually trying to create that yourself and risking having some grammatical connection between them. For example, red fast uh, fast red car or little greenhouse or things like that.
1: Right, yes. Okay. Interestingly, your, your two examples there, the first of which you corrected, showcase an interesting property of the English language which has specific rules about the order in which you put adjectives.
0: Oh, I, I, I remember all about it. you remember I used to be an English teacher? Yes, of course. A long time ago. <laughs> uh, and uh, there was a way that I used to help students remember the order that had to come in with size, shape, type. Uh, but I, I've completely forgotten it now.
1: <laughs> Most native English speakers are not even aware that this order exists. And that's why it's a particularly dangerous thing when thinking of passwords, because they will unconsciously, as you just did, right. try and fit the words into that order. Right. And that only makes the password easier to predict. So that is a, a very good demonstration, Alex, mm. of the principle. <laughs> right. uh, the, the one other thing, just for the people who want to get really nerdy about it, is that in a, in a sense, you can think of every word in a phrase-based password as being, from, from an entropic point of view, morally equivalent to every character in a character-based single-string random password. I see. So what that means is that the phrase-based passwords are usually shorter by that count, because, for example, correct horse battery staple has only got four words, right. whereas troubadour ampersand three has got however many letters it's got. But each one of those words is picked from a dictionary of some 10,000 or 20,000 of however many words there may be. And so the multiple doesn't have to be that high for the entropy to become higher with words than it is with strings of characters and numbers and symbols.
0: Sorry, I don't follow that. Can you explain it again? Okay, so
1: we spoke last time about entropy and about how there are two dimensions of this entropy property, right? Right. One is the length of the, let's call it a key, yes? Yep. And the other is the number of options that any constituent part of that key might have. I see. So a key, a password that is made only of the lowercase characters, A to Z, Uh, has got 26 potential options for each character in that password. I see. And then if the password has length 4 then you can calculate the, the total possible combinations of those 26 characters over those, you know, four letters. I see, I see. Similarly, with a phrase-based password, the password may only have four words in it, but instead of there being 26 options for each word, there is a whole dictionary's worth of options. Ah, oh, I see, I see. So the, the number of potential phrases that you might have is much higher.
0: I, I see now. Okay, so actually then, I don't believe that one password has a random word generation recipe. I know that it has, it has pronounceable passwords, that is passwords that are, are constructed out of completely random strings of letters, but they're pronounceable. So you have, you have, have separators that you can choose, for example, a hyphen, and then you uh, can either select pronounceable or, or unpronounceable. And so basically it'll be things like S U L O O C S. you know, things like actual combinations of letters that you can actually say just to make it easier to either remember or to tell somebody. I don't think that 1Password has word-based password generation. I think...
1: You are wrong.
0: I'm wrong, am I? You're right. <laughs> I'm, I'm not doing well today, am I?
1: I enjoyed listening to your explanation, so I, I, I thought I'd <laughs> leave
0: you leave you to stew. Yeah, well, that. That's, that, that is good, because um, I'm sure that um, uh, I know people who, you know, the whole idea of passwords, you know, it's just such a hassle. One good thing about um, word-based passwords is that, yeah, it's a hassle, but uh, it, it's much more sort of approachable to, to think of something cathedral, what? Uh, <laughs> whatever it was. I'll give you another one. Fellow Antholog Ward Shirley. See, now that is, that, that's much more approachable than you know lowercase A, uppercase C, X, V, 9, 7, you know, uh, asterisk. It's much more approachable, at least thinking of it a word. So that's, that's a great place for people to start, I guess. if uh... It
1: is, so long as they generate them randomly. That is the, the crucial thing. If they start using song lyrics and things like that, it doesn't what? work. And if they use correct horse battery staple, that is also not a good idea. It's a very famous webcomic. <laughs> right. Right. Very interesting. Very interesting. So, yes. And just one more thing just to top it off. We talked about open source versus closed source and being able to inspect the code and, and all of that. Yep. Security audits, proper security audits, are very hard. They have dedicated professionals who devote their careers to doing it. And so the idea that you are going to be able to scan over the code of an open source project and, and decide if it's secure is, is not very... Tenable. Oh, I see. But you can you can hopefully rely to some extent on the security. And particularly, uh, people who are starting out in a career doing security auditing may decide to audit an open source project as a sort of in order to show off their their knowledge and their and their ability as a, as a way into the industry. So there are valid audits of of both closed source and open source systems. The commercial systems will tend to publish a white paper describing how their system works. And the entire system, not just the encryption algorithm, the encryption algorithm is usually the easiest part to get right because it's been proven mathematically. So you just have to do what they say and it will work. But the whole system from start to finish, including the way that you actually input the password and where that gets saved and does that get put into some random buffer in memory that some other application could read or does it get securely encrypted and stowed away as as quickly as possible and all that sort of thing that's more where, where the problems happen. And so the the big password managers will publish security white papers describing how their system works so that you can read those and convince yourself that you trust them and that you think they are, you know, going to be able to store your password securely. So I will put a link to some of those in the show notes. They make for quite interesting reading, although they are they are also long and very detail-oriented. So... It's up to you whether you read it or not. But they, I, I thought it was very interesting. Mm, okay.
0: Well, that's interesting. Now, I have some shocking news. Go on. And this is actually something that... Actually, actually, when it happens to you, it is rather shocking. I don't know if it's happened to you before, but uh, a week ago, or uh, four weeks ago, depending on your point of view, my watch strap broke. Oh, no. Now, this is, uh, this is quite a shocking thing to happen, actually. So I was, I was luckily, very luckily... I was sitting down at the time and I was talking and I must have lifted my my hand up and it, it might have caught on something I'm, I'm not exactly sure what but suddenly I felt it come loose and I noticed it and caught it with my other hand uh, and because I was sitting down you know it was it was, a, it was an easy matter but because uh, yeah, my arms were you know at the right angle right there basically on my lap so it was fine but had I been standing up that watch piece would have gone straight down to the ground and that, you know, it wouldn't have been a good day. But my watch strap broke. Now, this is actually the first time that I've actually had a watch strap completely fail. Mm. And the point at which it failed is is actually quite interesting. The uh, I'm gonna, Again, we're going to have uh, a fun time trying to describe this um, using just words. But you have, uh, if you think the way that a watch strap is constructed, it's basically a strip of leather and it has a uh, flap that goes around this, what's called the spring bar. That's the, the bar that uh, holds a strap onto the watch, the piece of metal that uh, goes between the two lugs that are, that are poking out on the end of the watch. Um, it wraps around there and is usually glued on back to the strap itself to make a make a loop, basically.
1: Oh, I see. Oh, is that usually glued on? I thought it was usually stitched.
0: Oh, and on, on some straps, it is glued on. On some straps, it is stitched on. Okay. Mine, mine happens to be glued on. And I've uh, had this watch, I'll talk about the watch in a moment, but I've had this watch for uh, almost five years. Mm-hmm. And um, this, uh, this strap has, has been fantastic. It's a very nice leather calfskin, light brown strap, uh, extremely comfortable and wonderfully, especially useful for Northeast Asia here. Uh, it doesn't smell when you get sweaty on it, <laughs> which is something that I've uh, had an issue with with straps that I bought in Japan they for, for whatever reason, maybe it's just that the kind of straps that I've chosen previously, for whatever reason, they, they start to smell pretty funky when it gets really hot. But uh, this one never did. It was amazing. It's extremely comfortable and has all the wonderful things about a leather strap that you'd expect. You know, it's kind of formed. After a while, it's sort of, it's basically the shape of your wrist. Right. <laughs> it's, it's nicely formed to the shape of your wrist and it's extremely comfortable. It's very light and it looks, looks nice. And, uh, you know, being leather, the older that it gets, the nicer it looks. So, anyway, it broke. And uh, I saved the watch, which is uh, what I was most relieved about, because I love this watch. Did I tell you how long it took for me to actually choose this watch? You did, but let's let's tell everyone else. The, the, the man who uh, reads only one book took five years to choose the watch that he has at the moment. <laughs> you know, uh, the thing is is that uh, watches, you know, they mean many things. I mean, they're, they're a practical thing to have on your wrist to tell the time, of course. These days... Uh, I think the the meaning of a watch is is changing a little because so many people, you know, your mobile phone has become your sort of personal information communication assistant throughout the day, right. and the the idea of just sort of flipping out your phone and checking the checking something on there, you're doing it many times during the day anyway. So m- most people who don't have a watch say, "Well, I don't need a watch because I just check the time on my phone." So now the the actual meaning of a wristwatch is sort of shifting slightly and in a good direction, I think, because now uh, if you have a wristwatch, it's probably because you like them.
1: Right. It is almost a a statement at this point because they they are kind of an anachronism.
0: Right. And the the nice thing is that, you know, it could be because you like them or it could be because it was a gift or it could be because it has some special significance. For example, you bought this as sort of a memento, as a certain point of time in your life to remind yourself of some achievement or some some change of lifestyle or something right uh, many people often buy watches or gift watches uh, for those purposes which i think is wonderful this watch which is a uh, it's by a small german company called defacto that's d e f a k t o link in the show notes yes uh, has a special meaning for me because uh, I was after something very um, minimal. I like designs that are very, very minimal and very uh, um, timeless in that regard that you just don't get tired looking at it because it's um, so refined in its aesthetic appeal. appeal. It it contains nothing superfluous. This one I chose after, I think I narrowed it down after five years to two I've always liked the idea of a diver's watch, which is um, it's a kind of uh, watch made famous by uh, Rolex, which has a bezel around the outside, which is a rotating disc that contains numbers that you can use as a timer. So you basically rotate it and you can um, set the numbers up to align with the minute hand and that's an easy way to sort of set uh, a minute timer. And uh, I always used to find on the old Seiko what diver's watch that I used to have, I always used to find that really useful. Uh, but it's a funny thing, I guess, you know, as you... I think well yes that you know it's a diver's watch but I'm not a diver I guess really you know if you want to
1: that that applies to a lot of things in in watches though doesn't it yeah I mean the Amiga's got the the first watch in space speaking of space earlier and, and the moon if I was to wave at you from the moon wearing a watch, it would probably be an Amiga Speedmaster professional. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but I'm probably not going to the moon.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's probably, I'm not a diver, therefore I should not wear a diver's watch is probably a, uh, probably one of the lesser, <laughs> lesser quality arguments I've ever made in my life. But uh, uh, anyway, I narrowed it down to a, um, a brand called Archimede, which is a German um, watch brand, uh, they, make the ca- they make cases, it's made in a factory called the Eckler factory in Forzheim in Germany. And um, they make some really wonderful German style pilots watches, which if you've seen them before, you'll know they are you know, the quintessential minimal design that they're, they're extremely legible. The numbers are bold, bright numbers. Do they even have numbers? I have to check now. <laughs> I think they do. <laughs> they do, yes. Um, big, kind of sword shaped hands uh, with lots of uh, loom, which is the name for the, the chemical that glows in the dark. Um, anyway, it was that. Or interestingly, I found that Archimede, the, the Ikla factory, they have a number of brands. Archimede is run by um, Mr. Ikla. And Mr. Ikla's son runs this brand called De facto, which is like the small, much more modern. Um, more sort of um, design-oriented watch brand. And they actually uh, make their cases in the same factory with uh, the Archimedes uh, in the same Ickler factory. And they get the movements from Switzerland. Right. And they're all mechanical movements, which, again, I I just love the idea, you know, the the idea of a mechanical movement. It's like a there's the history of it, which, of course, is wonderful. Uh, For those of you who are not aware, a mechanical movement is basically a movement that doesn't require a battery. So, It will either be powered by you winding it every day, or it will be powered by a rotating disc on the inside that actually winds itself as you move your arm throughout the day, uh, which is what mine is. They call that an automatic movement, and it has a Swiss movement, which is of this automatic type on the inside. I just like the idea that it, it sort of lives on you. If you put the watch down, it sort of Goes to sleep, it just stops. Right. and when you when you lift it up and you wind it a few times and you keep it on your arm every day, it keeps going and it keeps going and going and going and going, and you never have to do anything about it. And I think uh, it's as a sort of a if you're going to wear a watch as like a companion through your life to remind you of something, or just as something to you know for a little brief moment of happiness, looking down at your wrist every day. Uh, the idea that the watch has some connection with you. It doesn't just sit there telling the time by itself. It actually needs you to tell the time, um, not only to read the time off it, of course, but also <laughs> also to, to power it by moving your arm. I, I just find that an extremely beautiful concept. All of that to say that my de facto accord, uh, which is this fantastic design by um, uh, Rafael de facto, who's the uh, CEO. Because de facto is actually a one-man shop. It's basically the son and his dad. Uh, Mr. Ikler makes all the, the cases in, in full time, and he he puts in the, the Swiss movements.
1: Is his name not Ikler as well?
0: It is. He's Raphael Ikler. Oh, right. You said Raphael de facto. Did I? Never mind. Raphael of de facto. Yes, thank you. <laughs> anyway, all that to say that this watch is extremely precious. And the strap broke. And uh, it's been an extremely brutal... Uh, the humidity at the moment, we're right on the tail end of the monsoon season in Japan, so the humidity is, is just... Uh, is incredible at the moment. So I, that must have finally done the glue in on the leather strap. Right. And it just broke. So I uh went hunting for a new watch strap. Actually, before I go into the watch strap itself, uh do you want to just uh, tell me a little about the watch that you have on your wrist?
1: Uh okay. Well, all right. Uh so yes, it was actually it was you who turned me on to watches and, and specifically mechanical watches in the first place. I did used to wear a watch when I was around eighteen. And I lost that watch. And I didn't consciously elect not to wear watches anymore because we've got a mobile phone or anything like that. But I never saw another watch that I liked as much as this one I'd lost. So I figured there was no point in downgrading. So I just never got around to buying one. And then when you turned me on to watches, I guess I didn't spend five years, but I did spend a good three or four months looking at different styles of watches and different brands. And that is part of the fun. When you first get into watches is learning your own taste right. and getting a feel for what it is that you like. Because the watches that I was looking at when I first started looking, I look back at now and I just think there's, there's no way I would wear that. It <laughs> was awful. Um, whereas the watch that I eventually ended up buying... I look down at every day and I'm constantly surprised and delighted by how how nice it continues to look and how, how it's something that really isn't changing. It's the same thing. It's mechanical. So it's not like I can make it, you know, change the colors of the hands or anything like that. But, uh, you know, it it still surprises me. Occasionally I catch it in a different light and and just remember. It's nice. Anyway, that watch is the Stover Marine Original, which is another German branded watch Mm. and also has quite a stark design, if not minimalist, Mm. based on the military pocket watches in Germany uh, during, I think, during the Second World War, which is a little bit, probably best not thought about, but... um, (laughs) It has so it is a manually wound watch so it is different from from yours which is automatic mine I actually have to wind myself every day before I put it on it takes about 10 to 13 winds in order to power it for the whole day
0: Do you mind doing that
1: Not not at all no and I I mean I barely notice it to be honest people do talk about it being a, a nice routine and making them feel kind of connected to the watch and and giving them a sort of moment to to stop and think during their day i'm not sure that i get that much out of it right i typically pick it up as i'm sort of wandering around and getting ready for the day and just wind it up as i'm walking from where the watch belongs in the bedroom to where the curtains are in the living room and then i open the curtains and, and carry on sort of thing there's right it's not that big a part of the morning but it's just a thing that i do almost without thinking now. right uh, the, I do like, it's got an open or a glass casing on the back so you can see the movement inside. Right. Which yours does as well. Yes. And it is, with the manually wound watches, those are particularly nice because they don't have the spinning discs. So the, the movement is completely visible, uncovered. Right. And, and so they tend to decorate these movements so that they look extra nice. Mm. So that's, that's a nice thing. The hands are blued steel, which is this special heating that they apply to the hands after they make them, which means that they glow in this very bright, almost electric blue right. when you catch them in the light. But they just look black when they're, they're not in the light. So they, there is a little bit of variety there that depending on the angle at which you catch it and the light in which you're looking at it, it, it changes. Uh, And it's just, it's a very beautiful watch. I love the typeface that the uh, digits are written in. Mm. I like the small seconds hand at the bottom. I like the simplicity of it. So I'm very happy with it as well. And it came with two straps in in my case. So if this strap breaks, then I will have a a backup. But I'll also be very sad because the, the strap that it came with that I'm wearing right now is... It's a very nice one.
0: Mm. Yeah, your, your watch is stunning. And uh, the wonderful thing about your watch is that it suits you so perfectly. If, if you had to think of Danny and you had to think of a watch, I mean, these two things just go together so naturally. <laughs> my, my watch, uh, I didn't describe the face. It's a little hard to describe, really. It's a black face. There's no numbers. There's no type on it except for the, the logo de facto, which is very small. And uh, basically, the geometric relationship between the thickness of the lines, the length of the lines on my watch is what immediately drew me to it. Uh, the interesting feature on it, it's only got one interesting feature. Basically it's, it's as, as kind of minimal as you could possibly imagine for a watch. You know, there's the, you've got our hands, you've got, um, well, I guess you could go much more minimal if you went something like Rado, you know, the Rado brand that, that has no, 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 nothing on the face except for the hands. But right. in this particular case, you've got, um, uh, you've got our hands, our indicators, you've got minute indicators Uh, The hour indicators are the same thickness as the hands themselves Uh, and the only feature of it really is the hour hand is actually, it's like the outline of the minute hand at half the length. So if you imagine the minute hand being this rectangular block, if you then drew an outline around that rectangular block in the same thickness of line as the minute indicators and then hollowed out the middle, then half the length... That's the hour hand, and it's obviously very hard to describe with words. But if you look at the picture of it, you'll see what I mean.
1: That, that was a good description. But we'll we'll put links in the show notes for both of these watches.
0: Yeah. Anyway, I love it. The name is Accord, which in German means chord, as in like harmony and piano chord. You know, like a C E G chord. Very very appropriate for you. Yeah, it's very appropriate. And actually, that uh, the history. I actually I've, I have gotten to know the CEO of um, De Facto, Raphael Ikler. Fairly well, actually, because I, I uh, like I'm sure every customer does. I actually wrote a very impassioned email to him after I received my watch to tell him about how much I loved it. Right,
1: <laughs>
0: the natural <laughs> and, thing to do. Yeah, not only actually how much I loved it, but why I loved it. You know, why I thought that his design was fantastic. And I just went through and described basically what I did just now, where I, I picked up on all of the. I noticed that the length of the hour hand is exactly the same length as the de facto logo, so that the logo will actually fit into the hour hand if you could remove it and slot it in there. All the lines are of consistent weight. The length of the lines is is perfect so that it looks completely balanced, but they're all kind of connected with each other in a sort of a geometric, a geometric pattern. And uh, I spelled all of that out for him, of course, I don't know, I was just very, just very happy with it. And uh, <laughs> uh, wonderfully, being a one-person company, you know, he just wrote back and said, oh, thanks very much for your, uh, for your feedback. I'm glad you're enjoying the watch. Um, uh, you seem very um, observant of these smaller details that I put in, what, what is it that you do? And then I talked to him a bit about you know, what, what my uh, previous work that I've done in graphic design, industrial design and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, we, we just got talking. And uh, that also, the fact that I know the person who made my watch, It's, it's, it makes it even more that feeling of attachment to this thing that I have on my, on my wrist, uh, makes it even more potent. That feeling that, you know, I just love this watch and I love, uh, Raphael's whole idea for his company. All of his designs just kind of hit me in the bullseye of my heart. It's like, bang, right there. (laughs) Yes, I want that too. Anyway. So, uh, the reason I brought all this up, of course, is the strap. So I'll just move on and talk about the strap that I've chosen because, uh, it's an interesting, uh, if you are interested in watches, you will be, um, you may be interested to hear about, uh, no, I should say, if you're not interested in watches, but this conversation is maybe turning you around a little.
1: If you're not interested in watches, I'm very sorry. I've <laughs> been talking about them you, for half an hour now. Yeah, you you probably,
0: <laughs> probably haven't listened this far if you're not interested in watches. <laughs> um, so anyway, the, the uh, strap that I've chosen uh, is called a NATO strap. And uh, a NATO strap is, um, I've had them before. I've had a very cheap one before on my other Seiko Diver. A NATO strap is basically a strip of nylon. And you might be thinking, well, why would you put an expensive watch onto a strip of nylon? Um, the history is actually interesting. The NATO strap uh, was one of the very early strap designs. It's actually a military-influenced strap design. Like, a lot of, a lot of um, the history of the watch is connected with the military. And of course, you know, Leaving aside, you know the 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 greater meaning of what the military is all about. If we just put that aside for the moment, the actual the wristwatch in itself. Did you do you actually know the etymology of the word watch? Uh, no, I don't believe I do. It's very interesting. There's there's two accounts, and both of them are not really military, but I guess servicemen related. Uh, the first account of the history of the word watch is that it's a short form of the word watchman, and in the early times, the person who'd be responsible for telling. The time would be the Tower Watchman.
1: Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Like that whole image of ringing the bell and going, it's four
1: o'clock and all is well and all that.
0: Exactly, exactly. And that's, that's the man of the watch. Right. The man of the watch. Uh, the second account is a, is a very similar thing, is, is sailors. Uh, also, people? the only people who would use a watch on the boat would be sailors who are on the watch. Right. You see, again, on, on the watch. So th- that's, that's where the, the history of the word watch comes from, and the um, the wristwatch uh, was worn by women as far back as the 17th century. But up until very close to the, I think up until the 20th century, uh, men traditionally carried pocket watches, right? Which is like a everybody knows what a pocket watch is. I hope, but it's basically like a a wristwatch without a band that has a chain and it's got a little lid that you flip open to see the time and you keep it in your pocket. The earliest um, um, incarnations of the wristwatch for men was uh, actually in the military. Military men started to wear watches in the late 19th century, essentially because they needed ac- they needed to tell the time, but they needed both of their hands free. There was, there was no capability to sort of reach down into your pocket and pull out a pocket watch right. when you needed both hands to be doing what you do as a military man. Anyway, the NATO strap then comes, actually has nothing to do with NATO, the um, military political organization, but actually uh, uh, it's to do with the reference number, uh, which is, I think the actual NATO strap is the G1018 or something, which is a form that you'd have to fill in, in the English military, if you wanted to uh, acquire one of these nylon straps. Right. I've come this far after 37 minutes of blabbering on about this without without actually telling you what a NATO strap is. (laughs) (laughs) So basically it's a nylon strap and the, the way that it's different is that it's actually made of one piece. So unlike a regular strap, which will be two pieces for both ends of the watch, this is a a, a strap that's exactly the length of uh, in between the lugs. That those are the bits that stick out of the watch, and it weaves down through one lug underneath the bottom of the watch and then back up over the other side. So it's sort of like um, the watch is actually locked on top of it by these two lugs with the with the strap going underneath. If that makes sense, right? The NATO strap actually has an additional strip of nylon that goes underneath that so you've got the, the strap that goes through the lugs, out the, uh, through the, um, the string, spring bars and out the other side then underneath that you've got one more piece of strap that's held by a retainer on the other side and the point of that is basically so that the watch doesn't slide backwards and forwards because obviously if you're on if it's strapped underneath like that it could slide along, uh, along up and down along the, along the top. Right, right. But the point of this retainer is that it stops it from sliding any further than a certain point. And that's it, and the, you may have seen NATO straps if you watch, uh, if you are familiar with James Bond, he had uh, several very famous NATO straps. Uh, one distinctive feature of them is that often they'll be extremely long, and that is to actually uh, allow for wearing on top of like a wetsuit or on top of a, some kind of uniform or something, again, for military purposes. Uh, so that's why they have this extra bit of length at the bottom. And what what people do when you wear it on your wrist is that you actually tuck that excess piece of length back inside itself. And so they look a little bit more bulky than uh, you might think for just a thin strip of nylon. So I chose this because after that harrowing experience having my watch fall off my wrist, one good thing about the strap there are a few good things about them, but one good thing is that because the watch is actually connected by both sides, with the strap going underneath the watch itself. It means that should a spring bar, this is the metal pole that holds the strap on, should one of those actually fail and pop off. For example, if you happen to catch your watch on something and you put a massive amount of stress on one of the spring bars and it breaks, the watch is still attached. It's attached by the other side, which is still hanging onto, right. the, onto the, the strap itself. So it, it's a, a very secure design. It's very simple. It's very, very light, relatively affordable. You can get very, very cheap uh, NATO straps. The one that I had before was extremely cheap, but I found that the edges were somewhat rough, uh, which meant that when I was sort of um, had my wrist at a right angle, sometimes I would actually feel the strap cutting into my, my skin a bit, which is not very comfortable. Uh, so the very cheap ones will have that. Also, being nylon, obviously, it frays eventually. But even the more expensive NATO straps, which is what I've got this time around, which actually came... An expensive NATO strap will run you back about thirty US dollars. Uh, the one that I got was about twenty US dollars, and they have much higher grade nylon, much finer weave, so that the edges are less rough. Also, they have um, parts of it are actually melted, so that it uh, create like a, a bond with the nylon, so that it doesn't fray so easily. Right. And the, the particular one that I got is from a company called Toxic NATO, uh, which is a US uh, one-person operation. And uh, he also has um, upgraded the hardware. So the hardware actually looks very nice on his as well. It's all brushed steel, which suits the case of my de facto very nicely. And uh, there you have it. So that is that is my uh exciting news.
1: Very nice. So hopefully you will be you'll be you'll be able to avoid this disaster again, or at least if if the strap breaks, your watch
0: will be safe. That's right. <laughs> Yes. Anyway, so uh, if you are if you are uh, considering getting a watch, please do because they are great. Make it a nice one. Why not make an occasion something nice to wear on your wrist and something nice to remember at this point in your life.
1: Take the time. Actually, don't worry about rushing into buying a watch. Just just spend some time. We'll put links in the show notes to Worn and Wound, which is a a great sort of blog and website with reviews of reasonably affordable watches yeah and then to Hodinki, which is another website devoted to the completely high-end the outrageous end of the scale right spending a bit of time on both of those websites is uh, both dangerous <laughs> and uh, v- very interesting because you you really do get a, a chance to get a feel for what it is that you like yeah and i think the best approach is is not to think oh i'm gonna buy a watch i'm gonna buy a watch like next week i wonder which one i'll buy but it's just to spend a bit of time just browsing these websites and get a feel for what it is you like, and you might not buy it this month, you might not buy it this year, you might take five years, like Alex did, but you you know you you can enjoy that process in itself.
0: Yeah, and uh, it's fun, and um, yeah, as you mentioned there, I was going to mention One and Wound. One and Wound is an excellent site because uh, they do reviews, very nicely done reviews, uh, on the whole spectrum. You know, they, they have some very very affordable watches there too. If you think that like a like a, a cheap Casio G-Shock is below regard in this in this world, no, it's not actually. You know, the, actually, the, the Casio G-Shock carries with it a, a legacy of its own. The One and One is great because they'll introduce you to, to the bottom end, and also on occasion to the top end. Whereas uh, Hodinkee is really for you know the vintage collectors and for the the really exquisite high end. And Hodinkee is fantastic as well because, yeah, obviously. The Rolexes and the the Philippe uh, and the the Panerais and all of those—they they are amazing. And you know, normal people like me will never ever, never ever own something like that. But <laughs> you know, it, it's like Top Gear. You know that uh, that great British uh, car show where they review supercars that nobody can ever afford. I think uh, even if you, even if the idea of actually owning or using, wearing or driving. Something like that is completely out of the question. As as a sort of a testament to their design and to the amount of um, basically to the the quality and to the the uh, um, just the pride that has gone into the manufacture of these fine pieces, whether it be a supercar or a superwatch, uh, Hodinky is great for getting an appreciation of that as well. So, very good. There you have it. So, as I mentioned um, just a moment ago, yeah, I was very very privileged to uh, spend. Two years in a an architectural architectural fittings manufacturer in South Osaka. So basically, they make things like handrails and staircases and uh, exterior fittings. Basically, the the sort of the accessories for architects when they're finishing off their designs. Let's just throw in a staircase, or <laughs> let's uh, you know <laughs> let's 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 put in this handrail here, or like this kind of uh, this shelving system here, or things like that. Uh, the company that I, I worked for was called um, Morita Aluminium Industry or Aluminum Industry, as it actually was. And uh, uh, it, was a, it was an absolute privilege to work there for two years. I was uh, lucky to be hired on there as a, um, a graphic designer, uh, but being that there were only two people in the design department, myself and the lead designer, I uh, got heavily involved in the industrial design aspects of what the company does as well. And it's a small company, 40 people or so. The factory is right there. The design department consists of two, three. Actually, now it's a little larger now. But uh, at the time, it was basically just me and my the lead designer. And uh, wow, talk about being thrown in the deep end of industrial design. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was, uh, it was go 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 from day one. You know, making prototypes, understanding form, understanding ergonomics, understanding people's emotions, people's feelings, understanding branding. Understanding appearance, understanding materials, manufacture, all of these things just all came at once. How did the um,
1: relationship between graphic design and industrial design go? Like, was graphic design a big part of what you did up front as sort of planning what the industrial, the, the actual physical object you were talking about would look like? Or was it more of you did, you know, the industrial design, the design of the physical product first? And then afterwards you're like, okay, now we've got to figure out how to brand, package, and
0: advertise this. Sure. Um, graphic design is, in my opinion, the root of it all. Graphic design is basically, it's flat surface design, usually. Right. And uh, the, the core aspects of graphic design are basic things like colors, balance, layout, um, and communication. How is it that we can convey this message the most efficiently, with the least amount of execution, is basically what graphic design is all about, at least in my view. Uh, so, an effective graphic design isn't all just about something that just looks really nice. That you know that that is a part of it, but it's also about effectively communicating something uh, in in a way that is easily accessible by the viewer. So, when you think about it, when you put it that way, that basically is the core of industrial design as well. Right? You know, industri- industrial design it's probably a bit abstract and a bit pretentious to call it communication. Um, but in a sense, it kind of is because you have a concept or you have an idea and the actual form that this object takes is communicating that idea and how effectively you can do that and how efficiently you can do that. That's where the the actual tangible sort of skills, skills can't be tangible really, can they? But <laughs> the actual... Uh, measurable skills come into industrial design. That means manufacture, the manufacture process, selection of materials. How can we manufacture this to keep the cost as low as possible, keep the production as efficient as possible using interesting materials and also make it ecologically respectful and safe? All of these aspects come into play when you talk about industrial design. So graphic design is a core element of all of that because the the process basically works like this. My lead designer would always say that, (laughs) he'd always say this is a very sort of karate kid, Mr. Miyagi kind of thing, but he would always say that Alex graphic design is basically like sushi. You can't make sushi without good fish, which is a kind of a a funny ironic statement because of course you can't because sushi is just fish. But his point there is that, you know, the, the concept of a design, whether it be graphic design or industrial design is about, about 80% of it, the actual concept. Right. And the, the The actual execution of it, which is what you see or what you touch and use in the case of industrial design, is actually twenty percent of that and th- that actually uh, I learned that in a very very rewarding way during my time there. I was actually privileged to take part in a designer 's seminar uh, where we had forty young designers from around um, the Kansai area get together for this five week seminar and part of that involved creating our own industrial designs for one of the sponsoring companies of this seminar right and the uh, company that i chose was actually a company that specialized in rotational molding uh, rotational molding is where you have it's a it's a it's a kind of plastic molding where you have a, a huge drum that's shaped like the part that you want to make you fill it with plastic pellets and you heat it up and then you spin it around right right and the, the plastic pellets, by centrifugal force, they fly to the outside of, the, of this mold. And then when you take the mold off, you have your large plastic shape. Right. And rotational molding is used for very large objects, usually made of um, things like, uh, you know, if you go to a, a children's playground, like, for example, the slippery dip is usually made of some kind of um, a fiberglass or ABS or some kind of plastic like that. Um, you may wonder how do they actually make something so large? That's generally done like this. You have this large metal case and they fill it with the pellets and they just spin it around and that forms that shape when you take it off. All right, that's interesting. So this was the company that uh, I'd chosen to do my design for and what was great was that, you know, what I'd learned by that stage, this was in my second year, what I'd learned by that stage is when you go to create industrial design to create a product, you don't just sit down and start sketching. You don't just sort of sit down and start drawing things of what you think it would look like. You know, let's, let's make it look cool and look like this. And I, guess that's one, <laughs> I guess that's one approach. But what I'd learned at that stage from my lead designer was that it's a better approach to think more about the concept of what it is that you're trying to do and let the execution be the final part of it. Right. Uh, so I thought as an experiment, I would try. This part of the seminar was actually a competition. So all 40 of us had to design products and the, a bunch of you know, famous, notable designers in Kansai would get together with the manufacturers and discuss which were the winning, and they would choose 10 winning designs out of the 40. Um, and to cut to the chase, I was really fortunate to actually win a spot in that 10.
1: Oh, well done. Yeah,
0: actually, I, I did it as an experimentation of a pure execution of my lead designer's approach. So what I did was I actually spent four weeks Basically, just working in sort of mind maps and writing and and a lot of thought mm-hmm. and thinking with no sketching and nothing visual at all. so I was thinking about the manufacturing process. I was thinking about the purpose of the designer. I was actually designing a an outdoor rubbish bin uh, a nice looking outdoor rubbish bin that could be made with rotational molding okay so that's so even right in the
1: initial spec you described, nice looking is it's first and foremost
0: well, no, I mean, I guess and yet. Nice nice looking well, okay. I mean that is assuming that I, I put nice looking in there because the current designs for outdoor rubbish bins aren't very attractive. Right. You know.
1: No, I'm just saying it's it's quite interesting that even this approach of thinking ahead, thinking of all the factors and the concept and the manufacture and all that ahead and only coming to the actual physical design towards the end, even applies when the look of the thing is a key and important part of what you're trying to do
0: in this specific case, yes, because it's a rubbish bin, and in Japan there's often like a cultural stigma associated with rubbish that it's that it's you know it's very dirty and it's something that um, it has a very negative kind of connotation associated with it. so for something to actually look appealing
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, is actually an important criteria for this in this situation. So all of this stuff basically, and then of course the manufacturer, the materials. Uh, the, the process, how long it would take, whether it would be efficient and therefore cheap to manufacture, key features of it that could be used to market it, all of these kinds of things. I spent four weeks thinking about it and you made a lot of documentation, a lot of diagrams of information, just sorting out like a sort of a hierarchy of information of what order I wanted to be communicating these things in in the design. And the amazing thing is, is that actually when I sat down at the end of all of that in the fifth week to actually decide, design what it would visually look like, It took about 20 minutes. Right. And the reason for that was because it wasn't really so much a creative exercise anymore at that stage. Like all of the thinking, all of the concept had been put into it that when it came down to work out what it should look like, it basically, everything that I had worked up to that point dictated how it should look. Right. Because in order to achieve this kind of, you know, for example, this kind of efficient manufacture and these materials and this color and all that, it has to look like this. And uh, the result of all of that was the design was very, very simple, kind of clever in in, uh, in its, uh, the way that uh, it was functional. I won't bother going into that. But uh, yeah, anyway, all of that. And then uh, I was yeah very, very uh, lucky to receive the a spot in that top 10 of the, um, it wasn't a ranked top 10, but basically the top 10 designs were then, uh, we had to make presentations for the whole group and like notable the, the notable designers in the, in the area in front, of, in front of everybody about our designs, which is great fun, so yeah, that was one of the main things that I learned is that um, uh, and it can be carried across to many other assets, uh, facets of design as well that basically right. the concept is is often uh, much more important than the execution, and if you have a solid concept, the execution will kind of dictate itself
1: right do you find you say that when when the ca- time came to decide how it looked and to draw it. It wasn't a very creative process by that point because all the decisions had been made. Right. Did you find that that takes some of the fun out of it?
0: Good question. Um, Probably yes. Probably yes. However, as a workflow, Mm. there are going to be things, like if you're doing industrial design for a living, you're going to be designing things that are basically not very fun to think about from a visual point of view. Right. Sometimes.
1: Was, so was the upfront planning fun? Did that fun, uh, did it disappear or did it just move to a different stage of the process, I guess?
0: It, it moved, it moved. Uh, the, the planning aspect of it and sort of consciously forcing myself not to visualize what I'm, what I'm working on, mm-hmm. um, uh, that, that planning aspect of it was a huge amount of fun. It's kind of like puzzle solving, you know, well, if I do this, then that's going to be a problem. So how do I solve that? Uh, it was a huge amount of fun. It's a different kind of fun than just sort of sitting down with a piece of paper and like you know sketching some wild spaceship or something. You know, it's it's a different kind of uh, creativity and a different kind of fun, really. Mm. Um, but as I said, you know, if I had to, if I was doing that every single day for a load of different projects at the same time. You know, the the actual process of sitting down and sketching something and making it look cool, so to speak, mm. that is, you know, it gets pretty dry when you're doing things like, you know, a handrail over and over again. Right. <laughs> or like, uh, you know, a shelf. You know, I mean, there's, there's only so much fun that you can have visually with a shelf. Right. Although, of course, there may be many uh, industrial designers who might argue with that. But uh, I th- having the the fun shift onto this much more cerebral intellectual pursuit of an efficient effective communication of this concept having a shift into that area for me uh, was i i never expected that that itself would be fun right i also you know when i first started the company it's like oh yeah i'm gonna cool i'm gonna draw lots of cool stuff and i'm gonna like 3d render lots of cool stuff right but actually you know after a little while doing it i realized well Hardly any of that cool stuff is actually manufacturable or practical or affordable or or even you know at the end of the day you end up sort of refining something that uh, yes it may kind of look nice, but it end, it ends up becoming just sort of this this sort of odd piece of visual decoration which is completely uh, infeasible from an industrial design manufacture marketing all of that uh, ergonomics point of view now all of that said, there are many wonderful designers who take a completely different approach and go the other way you know you you There'll be many designers who actually start off with uh, a visual design as their concept right. and then work backwards from there and figure out how to, make, how to make this affordable, ecological and all of that based on this visual design and then basically sort of make sacrifices to the, the visual design as needed by, you know, the, the, the circumstances. But uh, right. yeah, I, I, one thing I learned from doing from those two years is, is that concept over ex, or concept before execution And, uh, that aspect itself can be applied to, uh, graphic design easily. You know, if you're, if you're thinking about, I want to do a, I need to do a logo for a company, for example, right. Right. You know, if, if that was, if that was the situation rather than just taking the letters of the logo and making it look cool. If you actually spend, you know, the greater part of the time sitting there thinking about, well, what does this company communicate? What does this company mean? How is it viewed in the eyes of the consumers? How does it want to be viewed in the eyes of its consumers? All of those aspects of the the concept and refine that, then you tend to find that in the case of a logo that the logo just falls into place because you have all of the criteria laid out in front of you, and it's just a matter of finding uh, it's like a Venn diagram, you know it's just a matter of finding that that overlap right there it is that that's the visual execution right there and it's very simple. so mm-hmm. yeah, that's um definitely something to learn I guess it can also go into uh, game design as well, um, which is a bit more relevant to what I do at the moment in that uh, the concept of the game, even if the game was executed extremely poorly, that is, that was slightly buggy and it, the, the art isn't great and the sound is awful. And, you know, if the game itself is, uh, has a strong enough concept, it can carry itself through. And a great testimony to that, of course, is uh, many of the great um, ASCII games, uh, such as Rogue and NetHack and Dwarf Fortress and all of those. Uh, those are incredibly fun and fantastically designed but they're just basically straight ASCII text. You know, there, there is no execution, more or less. You know.
1: Although they are well, there's a difference between being badly made and having bugs and bad graphics and that, and just being made on a limited medium.
0: I think. True. Yeah, that's true. That's a, a topic for another discussion. Is is where limits limits come into all this? Because that's uh, that also is a is a very interesting discussion as well, um, which we won't do today. But yeah, I think that the main thing that I took away from those two years was that. Uh, um, if your concept is strong, strong enough, your execution, to a certain degree, you only need to sort of tick off the the, um, uh, the minimal requirements of the execution. And if, if your concept is strong enough, it will carry itself through extremely strongly anyway. Right. Um, which, which is uh, it's a really nice idea. And I think for um, uh, tying it back into uh, watch design as well, you know, the, it's the same thing with the idea of why I like these sort of very minimal watch designs. I don't need to have you know, superlative oyster motion, perpetual calendar, 200 meter, all that kind of stuff written on my watch. Because I know that. That's why I bought it. Right. You know, you know, if you want to make a watch that is a good diver's watch, Think about all the things that need to be made to make it a good diver's watch, rather than just writing "this is a good diver's watch" on the face. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 only my subjective opinion of, of certain watch designs. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. So it was it was a wonderful two years, and um, I learned a great deal about design in general. And also, one thing that uh, just to to end it is uh, is was a nice concept. Is just that you know, really, design in itself uh, it, it carries across all of the disciplines. You know, the 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 core the overall concept, the overall, not concept, I'm using that word too much, the overall objective of what you're doing and the, the workflow of it tends to be very similar whether you're doing, you know, textile design or you're doing fashion design or you're doing architecture or industrial design or graphic design or game design or web design or, you know, any of the, any of the, um, the disciplines of design that we have now, mm-hmm. um, that idea of concept and the idea of, you know, efficient execution and uh, uh, all of that is uh it tends to carry through all of it. So that that was really really great to learn that firsthand. Yeah, it
1: was actually that was one of the things I always quite enjoyed about working with you is that you had this, you know, many of us come from a very pure games background and we haven't really done anything else. Whereas you had this experience which is not a million miles away and still clearly very relevant, but it was just a little bit different. And I think that especially with the industrial design, the way you make things concrete including something like the the concept which feels like something that almost should be airy fairy mm. but w- with your approach uh, you're saying well n- no we will pin down exactly what this concept is and then we will have an axis around which all the decisions from this point can be made mm. because you know you'll often come to a, a decision point when you're making a game or anything else where you you need to decide what to do you've got a whole team of people all of whom have conflicting opinions most of the time and you need a basis on which to make one decision or the other and having a very strong concept can help can help guide you during those times
0: yeah i, I personally find it kind of annoying when it, it just basically becomes a you know a bunch of people giggling about what would be air quotes awesome because <laughs> when it comes to game design you know yeah we can do anything Yes, we can actually do anything. You know, you can make the game absolutely anything at all. And the the scope of what you could do with it is is limitless, really. Just basically limited by your hardware and the amount of time you have to execute it. Right. So, you know, when it comes to a bunch of people just sitting around the table giggling at each other about what would be awesome, I, that just really irritates me. And I think, um, yes, it's great to have fun. Obviously, you need to have fun with, with uh, creating games because games are about entertainment. But, yeah, I just personally like the idea of uh, yes, that indeed may be awesome, but let's save that idea for another game because it doesn't fit in with our actual direction that we're working with here, and that's this. Right. And I guess if you, obviously, you, you come to situations where people's interpretation of that concept uh, is gonna is gonna waver. Arguably, the concept probably isn't strong enough if people are interpreting it radically differently from you. If people have a completely different interpretation of the com- concept, then probably the concept either isn't refined or isn't expressed accurately enough. But uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, the, the, the options are, are just limitless. So therefore, again, this is coming back into the larger discussion of limits that I just said that we won't do today. But anyway, uh, you need to often have something to sort of channel. Otherwise, you're just going to be, you're going to have too, way too many concepts packed into this thing. It'll just become the sort of confused mishmash of, of uh, or so-called, designed by committee really which is basically what that is
1: right i mean i've i don't think i don't really recognize the thing you're talking about of of people sitting around giggling saying this will be awesome but my i definitely have experience of people saying we need this feature this is you can't not have this feature if you can't put this feature on the back of the box then it's a write-off for every single feature and then suddenly you've got just this overwhelming number of disjointed Features that don't fit together. And I do think that the best games that I have played are the ones which are very focused in the thing that they're trying to do and do that thing very well and don't try and do too much else. Yeah,
0: I guess in in my view, when you have that situation where everybody has their features that they're passionate about and that they want to see included, there are basically two solutions to that situation that I can think of. Number one is what we've been talking about, where you have a core concept that dictates whether or not certain features are relevant or actually effective in communicating that core concept. Right. So that will be an automatic yes or no right there. No, it doesn't help in communicating what we're trying to do with this game. The, the other solution to that situation is a hierarchy where you have you know basically one person uh, who makes that decision that no, that's not what I want in the game. That's not part of my vision. I guess it's kind of the same thing whether you have... You take that person's vision and create it into a put it into a sentence, and actually have that guide the decisions, or whether you actually have that person with their vision in their head, and then they say yes or no. You have that person decide, you know, and make those decisions. Right.
1: I mean, th- that person needs to be equally committed to a focused, clear, thought. You know, well thought out game. Yeah, true. Because it's in many situations that person is the producer or the director of the game and they you know they often don't right they this isn't like a blanket criticism they have they they do a very good job and they have a difficult job but you can't always rely on the person at the top to know what's best for the particular game right. like they there are some games which are made by a person with a vision and there are other games which was sort of an idea that is handed to a person that then has to direct it and then they try and lead it. But it wasn't even their idea to begin with. You know, there are a lot of games that you do for publishers that are like spec work that you haven't come up with the concept yourself. And even in those cases, I think this idea of a unifying concept is very important to pin down early on because you do run into this sort of trouble. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think um, often you'll come across situations where that core concept needs to be slightly modified. Right. It's not immovable. Yeah,
1: It's not that you, you know, it, anything we decide now is written in stone. And so we'd better get it right because there's no changing it. It's not, it's not like that, but you need a basis on which to make decisions.
0: Right. Right. So yeah, that's, uh, that was, uh, my two years in industrial design. Very, uh, very, very important part of my life, I guess, that uh, those two years.
1: Obviously had a, a deep impact, although perhaps not on this particular episode of the podcast where we have rambled on <laughs> a number of subjects <laughs> with no
2: real link between them at all. Yes.